Glacian and make a left turn. It is right before there. This is the last of our actual postcards. The series that we sort of worked through this summer is, uh, we call it Postcards from God. Is this is the last of the single chapter books that we uh, have in the scriptures that we'll be looking at uh, this week, uh, although the series continues next week as uh, Ken Bush will bring us a message, but from uh, more than one chapter of book, but still from one of the short uh, books uh, in the Bible. Uh, but it is amazing, I hope that you've seen this summer, that just because something is small uh, does not mean that it is lacking in potency and, and significance for us. And this morning as we look to this short letter, Jude, uh, at the end of the Bible, just 25 verses, uh, we will continue to see that God speaks very powerfully and very concisely through these letters. I'm going to read the entire letter, 12, 25 verses, so let's begin this morning uh, with Jude, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, that's us, may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. For these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all 
and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we do come with thanksgiving for this word, beautiful and the heart alike. We pray that by your spirit you would give us understanding, that with understanding that that which we contemplate in the mind would also be a kindling for the heart, that we would remember the love that you have for us, and that we would love you in response. Bless us with understanding and guidance and direction to shape our lives, that we might experience the fullness of your grace with which is full of the joy and the peace that we also long for. Bless us in these moments as we consider this word. Shape us that we might also be used by you to the glory of your grace and of your name. We pray in Christ. Amen. It was the playwright Oscar Wilde who said that if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing well. And if a thing is worth having, it's worth waiting for. And if it's worth attaining, it is worth fighting for. Now, most of us understand somewhat of what he's saying at the end. We, we know instinctively that there are things in life that are worth fighting for. Family may be one of the things that comes to mind first of all. If somebody, an intruder, breaks into your home, our natural instinct is to defend our families, and our families are worth protecting. Whether it's from a physical threat or something that would divide the family, Family is something worth fighting for to keep and keep intact and to value. Freedom is another thing. It's sad that there's a need for fighting to keep freedom, but the reality is freedom, as it said, is, is not free. And there are always people who will take advantage of freedom using their own freedom to try to oppress other people. And the only way to be able to maintain freedom is a willingness and an ability to fight. It doesn't mean somebody is a warmonger, but the people who... Uh, who fight the most, whether it's our military or otherwise, are often fighting against their own desires, but because something is better and something is more important and something is worth fighting for, and freedom is one of them. And there may be any number of things that we would add to worth, to worth fighting for, to the family and to freedom, but Jude here would add to that that in addition to family and to freedom, he would include the faith. 
Now, we don't know a whole lot about Jude. There's not a whole lot of record of him. There's not a whole lot in, in history about him. We have some clues as to who he is based on what he says about himself at the beginning of this letter. He considers himself to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, he not only has received Christ and received salvation by his faith in Jesus Christ, but as is true for every believer, he has now committed himself to living for the glory of Christ. And so as grace empowers him, he then becomes a dispenser of grace. He gives us another indication of who he is when he says that he's a brother of James. And that tells us that it's very likely to be the brother of the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, because in the day that this was written, there was really only one James, even though it was a common name, there was only one James that people would know at, on a first name basis only. Kind of like a few years ago, if somebody said they're a brother of Elvis. Well, there's plenty of Elvises around, but if they're only going to say Elvis, we all have the same idea as to what they're talking about. And so all scholars are pretty much universally agreed that Jude is the biological brother of the church leader James, who we are told in Galatians is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting as we read this letter that Jude doesn't go straight for what at least most of us would go for, what I would go for, and saying, hey, I've got something to tell you, and Jesus is my, my half-brother, so you know I have an insight that you probably don't have. He doesn't go there at all. There's a humility in which he speaks, and yet there's also a, a power. James, uh, James is the one that he refers to, who is the leader of the church, but Jude is very likely to be the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's writing this letter, and it's also interesting, is that he said that he has something else in mind, something else that he would prefer to talk about. He said that my desire, my intention was first to write about the salvation that we share, our common salvation. And that would have been a fascinating thing to read, and we have no record of Jude ever writing anything else, and so we are left wondering what it is that he would say an insight that we may not have at this point, but God in his wisdom has determined that at least we, we are not in need of at this point. But he changed his mind about what he wanted to write because of something that he felt he needed to write. As much as he wanted to talk about the glory and the joy of the salvation that all who are in Christ share, he felt that it was more necessary that he would write a warning to the believers in Jesus Christ. And we see the thing that he is warning against and really the, the key verse in this whole letter in verse 3 when he writes look I was eager to write to you about our common salvation but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and so while Jude would have preferred to just talk about something that is positive and delighting the salvation that is ours he recognized that there was a need for believers to be aware, and so he is urging. And from this, we recognize that he's giving instruction that it is their responsibility, it is the duty of every follower of Jesus Christ to commit themselves to contending for the faith that was once for all entrusted to all of the saints. Now, as we look at this letter, there's a couple of principles that we need to look at before we move to James's particular applications. And the first one is this, is that we must come to the understanding that James is declaring that there is a faith that is worth contending for. The words that James, uh, that, I just keep saying James, Jude, James probably agreed with him anyway, so uh, I mean Jude, I don't know, so anyway, the brain fog here. But... Jude refers to it as 
the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about a faith that was not a philosophy that was developed by the understanding of men. He's talking about that it was delivered. He's speaking of God who spoke by his Holy Spirit through his prophets and through his apostles and then given to the saints, which is the status of everyone who is a believer. And this is a faith that is not just something that is developed over time, but has been revealed by our God, and for the purpose of it is to be given to the people. And particularly of interest there, I mean, as important as to recognize that this comes from God, it's been delivered to us, is the specific article that he uses, to the faith. He's saying that there is one, that there's not multiple different ways in which we are to think about the things that he has in mind, but there is one, the faith, very, very specifically, quite likely, almost indisputably. What he's referring to as the faith is shorthand for the gospel. We see the same kind of language being used in Paul's letter to the Galatians when he's talking about his own story. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, Paul says that the, the reaction of the people when he showed up in Jerusalem was this. Paul, who used to persecute the church, is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. So he's talking about the faith, definite article, and there's this, this consistency there. And then if you're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, particularly the book of Galatians, Paul is very passionate about one message. And that one message is the gospel of Jesus Christ, about the life, particularly the death and the resurrection of Christ, that no matter how great all of the moral teachings may be, and no matter how wonderful the celebrations may be that commemorate all the things that God has done for us, we can have all of that, but if we lose the reality of the centrality and the necessity of Christ crucified on our behalf, we therefore now are declaring and believing another gospel to which the Apostle Paul says, there is no other gospel. He's quite passionate about what he's saying, and Jude seems to share that kind of passion, and he's recognizing that there are threats to this faith. He's saying that it's the responsibility for all who are believers to be aware of those threats and to contend to make sure that the faith is kept. And so it's very clear that there is one specific faith and there are reasons why Jude is telling us that we need to be contenders for this faith. Listen to what John Piper has to say because I think he's captured much of the heart of what um, Jude has in mind here. Piper says this, there are truths about God and Christ, and man, and the church, and the world, which are essential to the life of Christianity, if they are lost or distorted, the result will not be merely wrong ideas, but misplaced trust. The inner life of faith is not independent from the doctrinal statements of faith, and when doctrine goes bad, so do hearts. So Jude is speaking to us because there is so much that is encapsulated. If our hope is in the faith, in the gospel, the gospel must be maintained. We must understand what that gospel is. It doesn't have room for message creep, adding or taking things out. 
Because just like any medicine that you might take, the more you dilute it or the more you add to it, it changes all of the effects. And we are saved by the reality that this faith points us to. Now, it's important that we recognize that Jude is not contending simply for a list of bullet points of, of, of biblical facts. And Jude is very well aware, as is the Apostle Paul, that it is not those things that save us, but it is a person that we are saved by the person of Jesus Christ, who was God's gift to us, and he sent to us in order to bear upon himself our misery and our punishment in order that we might be set free. In that sense, Christ was contending for the faith. It's the person of Jesus Christ who saves us. And yet, the only way that we recognize what Jesus has done is because we understand through propositions that these are the truths. This is the story. This is what he has accomplished. And those things must be maintained because otherwise, we begin to trust in things that Christ did not do or we don't trust in Christ at all. And the scripture is very clear over and over again Apart from our trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf, our faith is in vain. There is no other hope. There is no other way. And Jude is very passionate about this, and he's telling us that it's not just a matter of we want to keep our doctrine pure. I think as Piper rightly has understood from the passion and the words that Jude has given to us, is that otherwise the alternative is we will believe wrongly. And therefore, some may be lost because they don't have faith, but even if we still understand and are trusting in Christ and his death and his resurrection, if we lose sight of that, then we lose joy, we lose hope, we lose heart because we're barking up the wrong tree. And so it's quite clear that Jude here is saying we need to contend for the faith because one of the first principles we need to understand that is in this text is truth is at stake. And truth is what we cling to so that we can continually be reminded of who God is and what God has done. Now, it's also important that we understand that in this, and I believe for the Apostle Paul too, there are different levels of truth, different kinds of truth that even the Bible speaks of this. There are things that we would consider to be essential truths. Paul talks about them as being things of first importance that he is entrusting. And I think largely that's what's in view here. And the thing of first importance is the gospel itself of Jesus Christ. There are secondary issues that are important that we have some level of clarity, but there is a latitude, and you see godly believers differing on those things. That might be on the, the nature or the mode of, of baptism or some other issue that is important, but it is secondary. There are also things that we would consider to be like tertiary. They're not even really secondary. They're not unimportant because either God has spoken to these things or we can deduce some principles from them. And then falling into those categories would probably be issues such as how do we educate our children and what is our political affiliation. They're not unimportant issues. They're vital to day-to-day -day life. But they are not related. They are not the gospel. And they're not even really secondary issues. There's far more room for diversity of thought on those kinds of issues, and yet they're not unimportant. And then there's even things that may be true, but they are trivial. And these are the things that you might talk about, such as people who split and leave a church over the color of the carpet, which I'm very thankful for the people who planned this building to alleviate that problem entirely. So we, <laughs> not only do we not have a carpet, the one we have has a bunch of colors. So anyway, we're, we're set. Whatever you like, it's probably in there somehow. You know, and, and we get wrapped up on some of these things, and too many times we get 
burden down on the trivial and the tertiary and we divide over these different issues when, and I don't think that that's what Jude has in mind here because he's talking about the faith and those are not issues of the faith. They're the issues of life that our faith informs and directs. Not unimportant, but they are not the things that he's calling us to contend. But he's focusing on the reality that there is a truth, the truth of the gospel, the thing that is of first importance that he's calling us to contend for. But we also need to recognize that in our culture, people look at truths in different ways as well. I heard it illustrated in this way, that there's different kinds of truths. Some people would call them, you know, there's truths like gravity, and then there's truths that they call like classical music truth. Now, the truth of gravity is very rarely denied. There is gravity. If you don't believe in gravity, you can find yourself hurt and beat up quite badly. If you don't believe in gra gravity, you assume you can fly, top, climb up on top of a, camp a building on campus, and decide to take a step off. You will soon believe in gravity. But there are other people who would make a statement and say something like, you know, classical music is superior to pop music. Now, I'm not a musician, so I, I can only go by how I've heard this described. The classical music, because of its complexity and other things that I couldn't tell you about. <laughs> but I understand it, I believe it, even if I can tell you why. And most people, other than probably somebody who makes their living through pop music, would probably agree, but in culture we, we say, okay, you know, that may be true, but who cares? Just because it's superior doesn't mean that so-and-so is going to listen to it. And so they refer to that truth as something that really falls in the category of personal preference. And, and the reality is we need to recognize that in this culture, in this world, we have this tendency to put the issues of faith and relegate that into the truth but personal preference truth. And what Jude is telling us here is there are some truths, particularly the gospel, that are essential. They are so essential that they are worthy to be contended for. In fact, they are necessary that we contend for them, not only for the sake of the glory of God, but for our own heart and our own joy and our own peace. And so Jude very definitely is laying down a principle here that we need to embrace or at least to consider uh, and, and to wrestle through in determining our relationship with God. Is there a truth? And Jude and, and throughout Scripture are saying there is a truth, and that truth has been handed from God, entrusted to us through God's servants to be preserved, not simply as a memorial and a monument, because it is the fuel for our faith and for our lives. But Jude says something else here that is important for us to recognize as well, because I think, frankly, if you're part of this church or any PCA church, or if you sought us out, if you're vacationing because we're a PCA church, we're probably pretty much in agreement on that first principle, though it needs to be reaffirmed over and over again. The second thing I recognize here that Jude is reminding us of is that this faith, this is a faith that we need to contend for, not only because of the benefits for us, but because it is constantly being challenged in one way or another. Jude elaborates in verse 4. He tells us here's the reason that people need to contend for the faith. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he's telling us is that 
the faith is constantly under attack, constantly threatened, not from the outside, but even more from the inside. And all of history would bear that out. The greatest threats to the church do not come from the outside. Even persecution, which exists and is tragic for many of believers across the, around the world, and it's and we, we stand against that because of the sacrifices, including lives and broken families that they are experiencing because of oppression and persecution. But historically, many of the times when the church has experienced the most kinds of most persecution, rather than crushing the church, it has become a fertilizer for the church to blossom. And so there's that old statement that has said that the, the blood of the martyrs becomes the, becomes the, the seed of the church. And while that is a very real problem, far more sinister is what Jude is describing when people come into the church, or maybe they've been in the church for some time, and what they teach sometimes is very subtly different than the truth that was once for all entrusted to us. And sometimes it becomes drastically, usually over a period of time, when they've gained followers, gained a level of trust, and sometimes there is a drastic, drastic change. I was saddened this week to find out that an old friend of mine who planted a dynamic church in San Francisco, was a PCA church, left our denomination over what would probably be a secondary or a tertiary issue, at least that was the claim. And then the slippery slope has come so far that he went on the record this week, and because it's a prominent and a large church in San Francisco, it's gained a lot of national traction, denying the necessity of Christ Jesus dying for our sins. If you'd have known this guy 25 years ago, if you'd have known this guy 10 years ago, you would have never, never, never believed it. And yet he went, proclaiming the gospel, the church was built up in a very broken, broken community, and then there was some subtle changes that kind of made everybody uncomfortable. And now as it continued on, he's been in the church and now he's teaching totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are other people who never even had his background. And so they come in and they teach. And, and the word that uh, Jude uses here is they teach what they understand by instinct. In other words, they just, there are certain things they pick up and there are certain things that seem to make sense. And they teach those things, but they are not in accord with the revelation that God has given to us. And Jude says that these kinds of people, sometimes they come stealthily into the church. They're not noticed. And the reason they're not noticed is they may look like us. They may use some of the same buzzwords that we do. Uh, for whatever reasons, the, the people are not noticed. But they are prevalent. They are not only prevalent in Jude's day. They were prevalent in all of church history. And they are tremendously prevalent even today. And sometimes they're coming and they're declaring that they've had a vision and a new revelation. And Jude refers to that. One of the things that Jude is warning us of and that we need to be on the guard of, if anyone says God has said, and then whatever the next thing comes out of their mouth, they're telling us that there's something that we must believe or something that we must do in order to experience salvation or unity with Christ. And unless they can prove it to us from the scripture, we need to recognize that God has said that he's quit talking about new revelation. He has entrusted the faith to us. It's been passed down through his prophets. 
Some people wrestle with that because that sounds as if then we don't trust the Holy Spirit. Of course we trust the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that people who are begging and itching for new revelations seem to forget conveniently is this was inspired by the Holy Spirit. All of it. And because the Holy Spirit is perfect and the Holy Spirit being God is clear, there's not going to be something new that is going to be contrast to what he has already said. If you want to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say, read your Bible. Now, the Holy Spirit does continue to speak to us. But rather than giving us new things to know, he applies the principles that have already been revealed into our own lives. It's not new revelation. And once in a while, that, you have people that focus on that, but probably far more common in our culture and in our day, are not the people who bring new revelation, but the people who teach some of the truths in a way that is warped or slightly, seems slightly strange. And this is not just some gener general or generic threat. This is a very real problem that we are facing in the church today. Because people coming with a warped emphasis are declaring something other than the gospel and it's passing for Christianity in the church. But we must recognize that not only with Jews warning. The Apostle Paul goes right to the heart speaking concisely what Jude seems to be feeling here too. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you previously, let him be anathema. In other words, let him go to hell. Let him be condemned over and over and over again. Just experiencing that judgment. These are serious words. And, and you can see Jude's attitude about that because he has the run-on of metaphors that, uh, that is, is just incredible here. You know, I, I wish I had been familiar with this when I was trying to write, you know, my middle school papers. We had to have so many words. He is like a drifting cloud. He is, you know, a waterless, you know, I mean... Just these, these metaphors, and yet not only do each of them say something that is very specific, altogether they show you, Jude, you could see, he, you know, as he's writing, he's, he's getting angry about this. And, and he's pouring himself out in all of these metaphors. Because one of the things that he's pointing out to the believers is that many of these unbelievers either don't believe anything or don't believe that there is any consequence for their false teaching. And he's saying, look at history. Here's what God has said. Look at the word. There is a consequence for their teaching. And in our day, there are people who are creeping in. And they're teaching something that is a different gospel that is no gospel at all. We recognize that not because of necessarily theologians at first, but beneficiaries of a sociological study. I've mentioned this before, and I don't want you to tune out on me, because I, I, what I hope this morning is that you'll recognize the importance of understanding and recognizing how dangerous this new faith is. In 2005, a sociologist who was then at the University of North Carolina, he's now at, at Notre Dame, his name was Christian Smith. He led a team in what was known as the National Study on Youth and Religion. And here are the five observations that they discovered that are the summary uh, beliefs of what they found in 2005 to be 
driving faith of teenagers. Now also do the math. If they were teenagers in 2005, they're young adults now. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. All right? So far, not too bad. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and in most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, these are the essential beliefs that Smith and his colleagues found in that study, and he's, you know, some logical things that we understand here. First of all, this was the belief of the teenagers. Where do you think they learned it? Now, when you consider the math, math and where they got it, is the teenagers who are now young adults were taught that by their parents. So there's very few of us who are not touched generationally in this decline, this replacement of gospel Christianity with what these things are that are called, uh, Smith labels them, moralistic therapeutic deism. And he says it really serves as our functional civil religion because this is not just the reflection of the teenagers of the day, but it was a reflection of really permeating. And, and it fits in our culture because it allows a lot of room for different ways. It feeds our natural instincts. And yet there is no necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ anywhere. Now, I want you to listen not to my summary of some things, but listen to what Christian Smith says from his own study. I won't spend a lot of time on here, but, I, but it's so important. And I know that I use this phrase so often that it can just go right over your head. Not only that, but, you know, other than me and a few other weird people in here who read sociology in the first place. So, um, but understand, it's not just a problem. This is practical. Smith says this, moralistic therapeutic deism is about inculcating a, a moralistic approach to life. It is teaching that central to a good and happy life is being good and moral person, nice, kind, responsible, at work in your own self-improvement, taking care of one's health and doing one's best to be successful. Regardless of age, these individuals believe that religion should be centered in being nice. A posture that many believe is directly violated by assertions of strong theological convictions. In other words, in this religion, to actually hold firmly to what God has revealed is antithetical to what they believe life is about. Moralistic therapeutic deism is also about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. This is not a religion of repentance of sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign deity, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, expending oneself in gratitude for the cause of social justice. It's not about grace. It's not about God's love. It's not about God at all. It's about God exists to serve me. Moralistic therapeutic deism presents a unique understanding of God. One who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in our affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a very safe distance. 
you read and seen people professing faith in Christ and yet also embracing views that are just totally antithetical to what historic Christianity has understood, and you wonder how can people do this, it's because this has crept into their worldview. This is like a virus, this is like a leech that has attached itself to Christianity, and it is shaping their understanding, and so they will borrow certain truths from the Christian faith, but not ones that are the essential parts of the Christian faith. And so therefore, God doesn't butt himself in, doesn't have any opinions about anything unless you want him to, and then I become the arbiter when I want to hear what God has to say. Now, any of us who struggle with the reality of our own sin, we recognize the problem with that. When I am in sin, I really don't care what God wants to say, so I don't ask him for his opinion. It's only after I experience the consequences, after I'm broken, or in gracious times when God just brings a renewal and, uh, and without particular pain, nevertheless experiencing the shame. And yet, this is what's being proclaimed, according to Smith, in many of our churches. And finally, moralistic therapeutic deism. Again, this is not my summary. These are from Smith's study. Is colonizing Christianity itself as the new civil religion. It seduces converts who never have to leave their congregations or even their Christian identification as they embrace this new faith and all its undermining dimensions. I don't know where Christian Smith is from a faith standpoint, but what he did as a sociologist, he took what people were saying, people that were in church, and declaring that. And his identification is that what is passing for Christianity, what is being proclaimed is mere moralism and taking Christ out of the essential nature of it. And it's affecting us. This is not philosophy. This is not possibility. This is the reality. And Jude's word to us is not only that we have a responsibility, there's a faith that is worth contending for, but there, we have a need to contend for it, not only for the preservation of the faith, but for the hope of our hearts and for our lives in this culture. We wonder why teenagers are leaving the church. Although studies are indicating they're leaving the churches that are not focused on the gospel of Christ. And they're staying in the ones that are. There is a real need for us to contend for the faith. Now, the word contend, and I'm going to wrap up with this. I know people are, for some it can make us a little bit anxious. Some get anxious and get ready to go because they're ready for a fight. Most of us don't like to be in a fight unless we absolutely have to be. And one of the things that we need to note from what Jude here is he's not saying anything about going and attacking other people. When he's saying contend, and the word contend simply means to exert effort, he's speaking to us. It's a matter of us dealing with it, exerting the effort that we would keep the faith, that we would maintain ourselves in that. And he gives us instruction on how we contend, and he's instructing the believers of how they can contend in their own lives and in the lives of each other. And he gives us four principles that I'm just going to point out and not going to elaborate a whole lot on. But as we look at the rest of the letter, Jude tells us this. First thing that we need to be aware of, we see it in verses 17 and 18, is that we need to be well-grounded in God's word and in his means of grace. Verses 17 and 18. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers following in ungodly passions. Now we can get caught up in the whole last times. And that is a broader category than some people make it out to be. But remember, Jude was writing that as if it was last times then. And it was because it was this side of the cross. So whether Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, whether Jesus is going to come back in 10,000 years, Jesus is coming back when Jesus feels like coming back. 
But in the meantime, there will always be these challenges to our faith. And the primary first thing that he's saying is we must be well-rooted in what God has already said, both about the culture and the truth that we are contending for. Second, we see in verse 19, he's instructing us to be diligent in building ourselves up in the faith. Verse 19, it is those people who cause division. Well, actually, I had the wrong verse there. So anyway, oh, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for mercy from our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to life. In other words, that we are diligent in keeping ourselves in the faith. Now, it says keeping yourself in the love of God, and that could sound a little odd as if there's something that we do that make God love us. That's not the language, and that's not the implication here. The love of God already exists. The question is whether we are experiencing the love of God. And the way we're experiencing it is through the communication that we have, through our time in prayer, through our time of worship, through our time in the word, in the issues of called the, the means of grace. We are in the love of God, and we are experiencing it as God has promised in those things. Third thing we see in verses 20 to 23, it's not, we're not lone wolves, and so we need to keep an eye on one another. Verses, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse uh, 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In no way is Jude suggesting that the people who doubt, people who struggle, people who may even be wandering are not believers in Jesus Christ. But he's saying we have a responsibility to one another that we keep ourselves in the faith and we keep an eye out for one another, encouraging one another so that we would all remember the truth of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And then I will simply say in verse 24 and 25, God's instructing us to keep looking up. Because he does finally get around to what he really wanted to do in the first place. He begins to talk about something about our salvation in this glorious doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, be for all time, now and forevermore. Because all of these things are important principles as we contend. But if we lose connection and we stop looking up where the power comes from and are reminded that it is God who has promised to keep us, then we will despair and lose hope to begin with. And now we come to this table, which is an